Welcome to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast from Centenary United Methodist Church. I'm Dr. Glenn Kinkin, Senior Minister here at Centenary. My hope is that this podcast will give you some good news for your journey today. So in our text today, we have Paul writing to the church at Galatia, and here are the words of the Lord for today. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, They gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which actually I was eager to do. My friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Almighty and gracious God, as we gather here worshiping and praising you, may your spirit be in and amongst us and showered over us, that we would hear your word read and proclaimed, and that it might change our lives, might transform us so that we would leave this place not as mere hearers of your words, but as doers of your words. In your son's holy name we pray, amen. St. Patrick's Day 1986 in Boston, Massachusetts at Boston College, they had a dinner to honor one of Boston's, Boston College's favorite sons, the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill. And as they were celebrating his birthday and honoring him, the opening keynote address was given by none other than President Ronald Reagan. Now, knowing back and forth that they had had this jostling back and forth in the political spectrum, Reagan opened with a joke, as he was often to do. These are his words, I know Tip was behind me, even if at the State of the Union, as I made each proclamation, each proposal, I could hear him whispering to Vice President Bush, no way, forget it, fat chance. And of course, the whole room roars at this laughter, at this joke that Reagan tells. But all kidding aside, Reagan and O'Neill were famous for their brand of hard-nosed politics. Reagan believing that government was part of the problem and needed to get out of the way. It wasn't the solution. And O'Neill believing that government had a responsibility to help those that were old, those that were sick, those that needed a leg up to succeed. But even in the midst of their differences in politics, their different policy ideals, they forged a friendship. And in forging that friendship, they often solved the problems that they were deadlocked over political ideology-wise. They solved those over a meal or maybe even a beer. See, they were always seeking to do the right thing for this country, the right thing for us to find the best solutions. And so they stayed at the table until they found them. 
And at the end of his speech, after he sort of basically took what I just said in much longer verbose format, these were his words. Mr. Speaker, I am grateful that you have permitted me in the past and I hope in the future that singular honor, the singular honor of calling you my friend. Two politicians of different parties, different ideologies, striking a tone of maturity and integrity, embracing friendship for the sake of country and for all of history. Oh, how I wish those were the ideals that we had in our world today, both at the political level, but even maybe down here at the granular level where we as Christians who are supposedly following the same God sometimes find ourselves split apart. Last week, as we were basking still in the glory of Easter, we talked about how God's grace transforms our lives, how it empowers us and helps us get a sense of self-worth and self-value, where we heard those words where God said, you are loved and you are special. And with that, it transforms how we look out upon the world. But make no mistake about it, when we think about that transformation, it doesn't mean that we all have the same gifts or that we all have the same practice of ministry, the same ways that we live out our faith. No, as a matter of fact, the grace that God pours out on us is that we are gifted differently with different callings for the purpose of the kingdom of heaven. But sometimes we have a hard time seeing that, don't we? Sometimes we have a hard time seeing that we are given the same grace by God and gifted differently because well, we're blinded by our differences. Today's chapter in Galatians 2, in the second chapter, Paul is reminding the church of Galatia that while these things can exist in the history of the church, that's not what was intended. So he tells his own story. He reminds them that he was called by God to be in ministry. He uses the word, the uncircumcised. What he means is the Gentiles. And that Peter was called by God, the same God, the same way to be in ministry to the circumcised, meaning the Jews. Now what, he, what he's really alleviating, what he's really hinting at is, friends, this was the first controversy. I mean, the church, we like to think about the Acts 2 church, that everyone was just wowed over by the spirit of Pentecost and the church started, and that the schisms and the divisions and the separations, they happened years later, but no, right at the very beginning, they also happened. This idea of ministry to the Jews or to the Gentiles, the first controversy, and yet Paul talks about how that quick, they quickly got beyond that. It says, because James and Cephas and John, pillars of this early church, they recognized the grace given to Paul, the same grace that was given to Peter. And so they recognized that and they extended the hand of fellowship, he says, which means they welcomed him in and said, your ministry, your viewpoint, your calling, it's all valid. It's no less valid than ours. It's on the same terms. What's happening here in this text is that Peter, Paul is telling the world, he's telling Galatia, look, the early church recognizes that my calling is similar but different, that my ministry field is similar but yet different. And we embrace those differences and they are affirmed because it's good for the kingdom 
Oh, and by the way, what we challenge each other to do is to do more. Remember when he says that they wanted, they asked only one thing of me. They asked me to be in ministry to the poor, which I was glad to do, meaning they both had the same idea. They were holding each other accountable. But my friends, my brothers and sisters, there's a threefold lesson here for us. The first is this, that God's grace enables us to embrace Christ. And enables us in that process to embrace a new identity in Christ. That's first, that by God's grace, that we, can ena- we are enabled to embrace a new identity in Christ. That second, this same grace enables us to embrace one another in our differences. And third, that this grace calls us, enables us to embrace the world with the hope of transformation, with the hope of building God's kingdom. So if you remember with me, if you were here last week or you, you, watched the, you watched the tape of it all, I'll give you the sum up. But remember, what we talked about was that prevenient and justifying grace, it makes us open up, it reminds us, it tells us that Christ died on the cross for us. And in that moment, we come to learn that we need to embrace Christ and his love for us, but in that, that we embrace a new identity in Christ. And it's in this new identity that we really begin to wrestle with who we are and what it is that we are to be about as followers of this Christ. We begin to realize that all of us across the globe are created in the image of God. That we are called to be followers. That we are no less in need of God's grace, any one of us. That no one of us is superior than the other. This makes me think of St. Francis of Assisi. What I remember about him is his story. Remember, he is, a, he is the son of a wealthy silk merchant. I mean, honestly, when you look at his early life, he was an entitled, spoiled brat. There's just no two ways about it. He really thought that the world owed him something, but as he was sort of living out sort of this, this hodgepodge of brattiness, if you will, he was always struggling a little bit when he would see poor people. And it sort of got the best of him one day, and he finds himself praying in a run-down, sort of dilapidated chapel. And as he's praying in this roadside chapel, the chapel of San Damiano, as he's praying there, he has this encounter with Christ who says to him, says, Francis, Go and repair my church. It is in ruins. Now, Francis took Jesus in a literal sense, and he thought he was talking about the chapel, which is falling down around him. And so Francis gets up, and he sort of, sort of girds his waist, and he goes out amongst the community, and he starts sort of the first capital campaign. He just starts begging people for money. This chapel is falling down. Would you give some money to help me rebuild it? Would you give some money to help me rebuild it? Would you? And and along the way, he collects enough and he starts to rebuild it stone by stone, block by block. And he rebuilds this chapel that it's now structurally sound and a safe place to worship. But along in that process, what happens is he realizes he's asking for money. He realizes the power that money has to change the world, the power that it has if it's focused on the right things. And he begins to think about this phrase, Francis, go and repair my church. It's in ruins. And he begins to realize it's not about a building. It's about us. 
It's about the followers of Christ. That we've lost our way in our own sort of entitlement, our own brattiness, our own misdirection. So he decides that he is going to follow in Christ's footsteps. He's going to devote his life to that. He's going to do his very best to care for creation. That's why he's the patron saint of animals. But he also starts to look to where he sees God in the eyes of everyone that he meets. So he embraces his whole new identity. Starts a whole order within the Catholic Church which reaches out to help people no matter where they are to lift them up out of their circumstances. He's embraced this new identity in Christ. Well, friends, as we've received that grace ourselves and we embrace this new identity and we embrace God's grace for us, it helps us to think about this new life in Christ. What might it look like? Might it look like Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ or the wristband that we wore so many years ago back in our adolescence and, and you know, back in the 90s and the 2000s, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? Now think about it with me. What would Jesus do today? How did Jesus live his life? What would he do today? Well, Jesus welcomes the strangers. Jesus prays to listen to God. He prays for his enemies. He prays for direction. Jesus practices Sabbath, that moment where he goes away and shuts the world off and just listens and rejoices in what God has provided for him. Jesus heals the sick and the brokenhearted. He comforts those who grieve. He feeds the hungry. He washes feet. He forgives those who revile him. He forgives sins. He seeks the least, the last, and the lost. And he loves everyone. These are the things that we would take on, that we would embrace if we embraced this new identity in Christ by grace. But just as we begin to embrace that, we have to start to look to each other and ask ourselves, do we embrace one another? Do we embrace the differences that we bring to the table? You know, the early church is plagued by some of the things that have cropped up again and again and again in the history of the church. This idea of singularity, the singularity of thought or practice or viewpoint of understanding where my way is the right way and the only way, and if you don't believe in it, goodbye. But if we read into Paul's treatise to the church in Corinth, that part where he talks about the body, chapter 12, the body of Christ, what he's really talking about is that no one of us have the market cornered on the giftedness of God, that no one of us is any more important in the kingdom that it takes all of us. I mean, think about just this worship service alone. If I ask you, who is the most important person? What is the most important role? Is it this preacher? Or that one? Or that one? Or is it the acolytes, the choir, the children's choir, those in children's church, our security team, our facilities team? Is it John up in the crow's nest making sure that everything goes smoothly technologically? Is it you? See, the answer to this is no. None of us is more important than the other because worship happens when two or three of us are gathered together to be focused on God. So what we begin to understand is we start to think about this embracing our new identity in Christ is that we also need to embrace each other because we're all 
embracing a new identity in Christ. We're all brothers and sisters. We have different roles, different views, different skills. And it's tempting sometimes to say to the world and maybe even to our closest of friends, you know, if they would just listen to us, the world would be a better place. Only in our eyes, though. Because what does it look like when we put a problem that vexes the world or the church on a table and we come together and we bring our solutions? I think about that old parable of the blind men that were trying to figure, they were on different sides of an elephant and, and petting it, trying to figure out what it is. And they would describe, it must be like a trunk, it must be like a gigantic tree, or it must be immovable like a rock, or what's this trunky thing? All of these things, but yet if they sat at the table and poured their ideas out, they would see what was right in front of them. They would know what to do with it because they weren't blinded by their soul perspective. My brothers and sisters, when we embrace each other by grace, we embrace our differences, then we begin to see something beyond ourselves. And we might see a glimpse of what the kingdom could be. We might see a glimpse of what could happen and how we might be better together as a body if we saw and celebrated each other's gifts, differences, and love for God. And when we begin to do that, then we turn and look out upon the world. And as we have embraced a new identity in Christ, we've embraced each other's differences, then we begin to embrace the world around us. And that's where we bring about true transformation. Because what matters most, when we think about what we face in the world, what matters most is the baseline, the starting point. That's why earlier this year I taught that class on the Apostles' Creed, because the Apostles' Creed is the essentials of what it is that we as Christians believe. And we begin to anchor our lives in those very basic beliefs, some of the nuances that we find between denominations and even differences in theology in that spectrum they don't matter as much because the foundation is what we're built upon. It becomes the anchor point upon which we look out on the world with our questions and our solutions, and we begin to think theologically about what it means and how we might address what's in front of us. We start to look out on the world and we ask ourselves, what does it mean that all of us are made in the image of God? We are perfectly imperfect and made in the image of God. Or what does it mean to take Jesus' teachings on love, to love one another, to love our neighbor, oh, and to love our enemy? Theologically, what does that mean about how we act and how we behave? What will that, what will that change in the world around us? What does it mean to follow Christ wherever Christ leads us, even when we don't want to go there? And what does it mean to embrace the world in love and leave the judgment to God? See, when we put these questions in the context of embracing our new identity in Christ, embracing the differences that we see in each other and embracing the world around us, then the transformation, the building of the kingdom comes right in our midst. And that's the power of God's grace. That's a Holy Ghost kingdom transformation opportunity because grace is right in front of us. So I think back to that night 
1986. The singular honor of calling you my friend. What about the singular honor that we have of calling each other not just friends, but brothers and sisters in Christ? The singular honor of looking out upon the world not as people, but as siblings, brothers and sisters, children of God. See, when we embrace that kind of grace, as flawed as we might be, when we embrace that grace, then we find new life. When we, embrace, when we bring that kind, of bra- that kind of grace and that embrace, we see each other not as opponents, but as family. And friends, if there's one thing that our world needs now more than ever is for the people of God to stand up and say, we are family and we are here to make a difference. We're going to embrace the differences in each other and turn things around for the sake of the kingdom. And the world better watch out. Because when we do that, what we pray when the Lord, we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, can happen, my friends. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Thank you for listening to Heart, Soul, and Mind, the podcast for Centenary United Methodist Church. We hope that you will consider joining us for worship on Sunday mornings at 9 or 11 a.m. Blessings. Blessings.